welcome to this week's episode of Across the Cemetery. My name's Emma. My name's Josh. And today Josh is going to be leading the episode. And then next week we've got a special surprise for you. Emma's actually doing an episode. Dun dun dun! <laughs> so, what are we talking about today? Today we are going to be talking about Spring Heel Jack. What's so, it? Uh, no, go on. Were you going to ask me who Springs Heel Jack was? Yeah, I've never heard of it. Well, I've got him. about five and a half thousand words to tell you all about him now. Bloody hell. <laughs> to everyone else, that doesn't mean anything, though, does it? No, because we could just, you could just be like, ah, bruh, Why have you just done your alphabet like a child? No, because it could just be like, oh, I don't know. Okay, so jumping into, and in brackets, Pun very much intended. <laughs> the topic of this episode we are brought to a subject that blurs the boundaries between paranormal, true crime and folklore. Today we are going to be talking about spring Jack. Now this episode will be a bit different to our other episodes as we are going to be solely based upon one topic rather than the usual format of numerous smaller stories. So if after listening to this you have any constructive criticism or comments I'd be happy to hear that I must have been in a good mood writing this. You'd be happy to hear something. Details of our, of our social media profiles are in the description, and you can also email us on acrossthecemetery at gmail.com. I think I get that in there early because you never, you never usually say <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, so, Spring Hill Jack was what I will refer to from now on as the phenomenon that terrorised Victorian Britain for around 60 to 70 years. I say phenomenon as the apparent heights that Jack could reach were reported to be as tall as the roofs of houses, all from a single leap. Now obviously a guy that can jump really high isn't exactly a menace, but those somewhat familiar with this tale will also know that spring Jack had a bit of a criminal habit. First encounters with the beast are purported to be around the year 1837. London was the initial haunt of spring Jack, but he was also said to have moved across different parts of the UK continuing his spread of trepidation. To truly get to the bottom of this character that embedded himself in British folklore, I think it is only right that we investigate the different aspects of spring Jack to get a full understanding of the horror that was inflicted by this perpetrator. We will firstly assess what the standout traits were that set Jack aside from your run-of-the-mill Victorian criminal. Moving on to where he was spotted along with what he was alleged to have done, and also what was done to catch him, and finally moving on to the potential suspects of who spring Jack actually was. So, going through this, because it is a bit longer than usual, I will st- I'll, I've split it into sections, like I mentioned, so I'll stop at each section, at the end of each section, and you can ask any questions you may or may not have. Okay. Um, I know this probably isn't it. I mean, I know this definitely isn't it. But you know, do you remember them boots that you used to have when you were younger and you could bounce on them? No. Like a, they were like a pogo stick, but they were like little like boots that you put on. You got them from Argos. Well, yeah, that's what popped into my head when you said he like leaps high. <laughs> well, I can 100% confirm that's not it. <laughs> what a shame. <laughs> so, firstly, we're going to look at... What could Spring Hill Jack actually do? What made him, what set him aside from your run-of-the-mill Victorian criminal? <laughs> so, like some sort of twisted anti-superhero, Spring Hill Jack boasted an array of superhuman abilities that enhanced his ability to wreak his havoc upon victims across the UK. 
Beginning with the obvious, the Victorian terrorizer had the ability to make absurdly high leaps, some reporting that they witnessed Jack jump over large walls and even to the roofs of houses. Often this was his method of escape from the scene of the crime. What isn't truly understood is whether this was a superhuman power or something a bit more man-made. Illustrations of the offender seem to appear, believe it or not, with springs in the heels of his boots. Hmm. If this is to be the case, it may allude to a theory that Spring-Heel Jack is more human than paranormal or super-being. Moreover, Jack was alleged to have razor-sharp claws that were used to aid his efficient tearing of victims' clothing, the victims primarily being young ladies. While potentially giving Spring-Heel Jack a primitive characteristic, these could potentially be explained away with modified gloves fitted with blades in the fashion of claws to give an animalistic style to his outfit. This would also support the earlier theory that this phenomenon is more human than we may be first led to believe, as if these modified gloves are combined with the potentially modified boots, that would go a long way to backing up the argument that Spring-Heeled Jack could be some sort of mad professor turned criminal. Something that is somewhat more concerning is the fact that this being had another trick up his sleeve Well, it came out of his mouth to be exact. It was reported that in some encounters, Spring-Heel Jack could also spit flames from his mouth, which were often told to be blue and white in colour. This demon-like feature may have been used in a multitude of situations, from simply being used in close quarters to escape potential captures through to being used to stun or harm victims when on the hunt. Fire breathing isn't a completely new concept, with the well-known circus act dating back to the records of ancient Egypt. What is perplexing about this case, however, is that the art of fire breathing has pretty much stayed the same for for eternity. Essentially, the performer has a flame in front of them and holds some sort of fuel in the mouth. Spitting the fuel at the flame will lead to an outburst of fire that seemingly shoots out from the performer's mouth. As this is the case, in the tales of Spring-Heel Jack, it was told that the flames came from his mouth were of a blue and white nature. A blue flame was the hottest kind, ranging, ranging between 2,500 to 3,000 degrees centigrade, while the orange flame of a fire breather is still pretty hot at around 1,100 degrees. They don't truly start the flame in their mouth, they only have fuel in their mouth, so a, a fire breather in the circus sa- yeah. sense doesn't spit flames, he spits fuel at a flame yeah, no, no, to exaggerate it. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning Spring-Heeled Jack would have to endure incredible heat inside of his skull before unleashing it upon his victim. Furthermore, he is not said to carry a flame. This would tell me that he isn't just spitting fuel at a flame to get the desired effect the flame is being produced within his mouth. Now that I've done a bit of research on fire breathing, I cannot find any that includes a flame being produced from the mouth specifically. Only the type that is described above with the spitting flame, spitting of fuel onto an open flame. That's not to say that it may not be possible. Potentially Jack was able to produce some sort of in-mouth chemical reaction to spark a flame that gave the impression he produced it. This would back up the mad inventor type story, but the sheer heat that is in his mouth would have to contain, he'd have to contain would be incredible to the point that surely no human could withstand it. Finally, looking at the clothes that Spring-Heeled Jack wore, many of the illustrations that can be found are often shown to perpetrate in quite stylish, well-made clothing. 
contrary to this, reports of those unfortunate enough to encounter Jack have told of a slightly different tale. Starting at the head, his mask, sometimes horned, dependent on the account, covers the majority of his face, rendering him unidentifiable. Despite the mask protruding through are two devilish red eyes, glaring at his victim, making the shock the first form of assault. The beast is told to be wearing a cloak. This is made from fine material with an expensive shimmer and a weighted float that only quality can bring. Presumably, the cloak is in place to hide what is underneath. Reports have said that Springheel Jack wears tight-fitted clothing may be a bit unusual for the time in itself, but that it isn't made from a regular material, it is supposedly made from an oily skin-like material. It may be assumed that if this is to be true, Jack could be dressing in a sort of whale or sea lion type skin, which would make a lot of sense for what he's trying to achieve. The skin would be very slippery, so hard for somebody to grab hold of. Furthermore, it would be very resistant, so should any somebody be able to fight back and assault from spring Jack, the skin would be an extra layer of protection for him. The theory behind wearing an animal skin does lend itself to the possibility of Jack being a bit of a mad scientist. He would appear to be using gadgets and inventions to wreak terror on his victims, but then again, if Jack were to be of a paranormal persuasion, wouldn't that be exactly what he'd want you to think? So, he's a dragon, he's a wolverine, and he's a whale. <laughs> Wolverine's a character, a werewolf. The claws. A werewolf. <clears throat> Wolverine's the, the oh, character yeah, of the next man. Hugh Jackman, isn't it? Uh, I think it's a sore subject in that, in that universe at the moment, but oh. has been. Um, yeah, at first he sounded scary, but then when you were saying he's like in a whale outfit, I just thought he wasn't, didn't sound that scary then. Yeah, I mean, so that, I'd like to meet him. No, I wouldn't like to meet him. Um, it does. It definitely sounds more like he's man, like he's a scientist, man-made rather than. Like a creature that's been born, I'd say. Well, some theories may be that he's not a creature that was born, maybe he's paranormal. Yeah. But that he's been like like Frankenstein's monster. Hmm. Yeah. Something like that. So the next section we move on to is where was Spring Hill Jack seen and what did he do? Eighteen thirty seven London was in a transition of monarchs. Following the death of William the Fourth, one of the most famous heads of states was then crowned Queen Victoria. Her reign astoundingly lasted for just shy of 64 years, topped only by Queen Elizabeth II, Queen Victoria's great-great-granddaughter. Queen Victoria saw the industrial boom of Britain and, of course, the now controversial colonisation of the British Empire, Empire on which the sun infamously never set. Coinciding with this movement in royalty was another more sinister character putting his stamp on the capital of England. One evening in 1837, Mary Stevens was making her way to Lavender Hill in the Clapham area of London. As a lone lady making her way through the dark, Mary was targeted by the assailant that would later become known as spring Jack. Leaping out of the shadows and grabbing Mary, Jack began to tear away at the victim's clothing with razor-sharp claws that projected from the knuckles of his gloved hands. Mary's screams alerted the attention of members of the public who hurried to her aid but were unable to locate the assailant who had seemingly vanished into thin air. Hearsay and rumours began to flurry around London 
of a masked perpetrator who was targeting the women of London. These rumours then reached a new level of intensity when in 1838 a woman named Jane Orsop was attacked when answering a knock at her front door one evening. This case went to court and it was heard that the attacker wore a cloak to disguise his true appearance and upon gaining entry under false pretensions the cloak was flung off to reveal tight fitting clothing, a masked face and clawed hands. It was insisted by Jane Orsop that the assailant then breathed blue and white fire into her face to render her vulnerable and then began to tear her clothes. The attack was only halted when Jane's sister heard the commotion at the front door and ran to the aid of her sister, frightening the the attacker away. A man named Thomas Wilbank was charged with this, but we'll have more on him a bit later on. Following the the attack on Jane Orsop, a young lady named Lucy Scales was also attacked by Spring Hill Jack just over a week later after the attack after Miss o- on Miss Orsop. Interestingly, on this occasion, it was said that instead of luring his victim in with, false, with a false story such as ringing the bell of a house, Jack was said to have been leaning against the wall as Lucy Scales walked past after parting ways from her brother following a visit. Jack was smartly dressed and once he noticed that Lucy was alone, he sprung into action. Wasting no time, blue and white flames were discharged from Jack's mouth, blinding his victim and rendering Lucy's scales helpless. Lucy began to scream, attempting to attract the attention of any passers-by, but before anybody could run to the aid of Lucy, Springheel Jack had already made a couple of furious swipes at his prey. Then following the screams, the stomping of boots could be heard, signalling the presence of support incoming. In response, spring Jack darted into a nearby alley, and instead of his usual trick of leaping over walls or onto buildings, it is reported that Jack simply vanished, leaving no trace of his presence or indication of where he had went. Reports of the likes that which happened to Lucy Scales are the reason why many do believe that spring Jack had a paranormal aspect to his being, something that cannot quite be explained with logic and reasoning. Another encounter draws more depth to the tale of spring Jack. This encounter was just under 40 years later, in the area of Aldershot, just outside of London. What makes this a bit different to the previous attacks, aside from the location, is that the victim was not a young lady, as we've been become accustomed to. This tale begins as a soldier was standing guard in his bleak wooden checkpoint box. Think along the lines of the boxes that guards in London have, just enough space for a person to stand in and escape the rain. The soldier on guard began hearing an odd scraping sound on the road in the distance. The dim light, coupled with the rain pelting onto the ground, led to visibility being at a bare minimum. The sound edged closer, giving an ear-piercing scratching sound, unique only to metal being dragged on the stones of the cobbled road. The soldier bravely moved from his post to investigate what the cause of the noise was, but nothing was found. A second soldier posted in a similar box quizzed the investigating soldier who reported that nothing was there and began to turn and head back to his small shelter. But once the soldier had fully turned around, an icy claw grasped the man's face. Droplets of rainwater trickled down the soldier's cheeks from the metal blades that adorned the unknown assailant's hand. The soldier let out a shout of terror, signalling to the other soldier who was on guard to jump into action, which he did promptly. 
Running over to the source of the shouting and pulling back the lever on his rifle to signify to the attacker that the soldier had the upper hand. This was enough to make the clawed stranger drop the man's jaw that was grasped so tightly. Wasting no time in the mercy of this moment, the failed investigator joined his soldier colleague in pointing his dropped rifle at the thing. It was at this point of the standoff where the stranger appeared to be on the losing end of the duel, that the soldiers knew they were not dealing with a regular intruder. A blue and white flame shot from the mouth of the stranger, taking advantage of the moment of lapsed threat. The thing leaped over the soldiers and into the distance, leaving them in no doubt that they had just encountered Springheel Jack. From this encounter, it is said that Springheel Jack moved further up north with sightings being reported in places such as Shropshire and Lincolnshire. One theory as to why this may have happened is that Jack became so notorious in London and surrounding areas that he could no longer get away with his heinous crimes with such ease as people had came up with more and more ingenious ways to attempt to capture or deter him. The tales from moving up north seem to also signify that Springheel Jack had moved from assaulting women to attacking pretty much anything. It was told that in Shropshire, Jack leapt from the cover of a tree line onto the back of a moving horse that was pulling a cart. The driver attempted to fight Jack off by whipping him repeatedly until the horse began to buck and kick wildly, which eventually led to Springheel Jack vaulting high into the air, back to the cover of the forest, not to be seen in the area again. Recognised as the final encounter of Springheel Jack, we find ourselves in 1888 Liverpool. Ooh. More specifically, the Everton area of Liverpool, which is quite close to the city centre. Uh, <laughs> it is told that a young boy from St Francis Xavier's Boys Guild was playing in one of the classrooms when a leaping figure startled him as it darted past the windows of the building. The boy alerted his teachers and peers, but on further investigation, no trace of any such leaping figure could be found. Although it was said that a crowd did then gather outside St Francis Xavier's church as an unknown figure, presumed to be Springheel Jack, clung to the steeple of the building, surveying the shock crowd below. This is apparently not the last case of Springheel Jack in Liverpool. There are reports of the ministry servicing in 1904, although on this occasion it was said that the crimes were committed were merely the throwing of objects at windows of a house which caused the occupants to go outside and attempt to find the assailant. When neither the residents or the police could come up with a culprit, it was declared to be the work of Springheel Jack. Is that like a, like a little a bit of a scapegoat though? Yeah. From these encounters, I think it's definitely worth noting that the attacks of Springheel Jack became more and more benign as time went on. The early encounters would be the assaulting of young women in London. But as the encounters moved out of London, while there were attacks, they seemed to be by those unfortunate enough to come across the being, or if the victims were unfortunate enough to get close enough to Jack. The events in Liverpool do not appear to have any negative outcome from my research, other than the mild nuisance caused to the residents. Hmm. So I don't think it was him in Liverpool, you know. I think they're just looking <coughs> for something that was similar to the time to blame okay if the police couldn't like find something do you know what i mean so the next section we move on to was what was done to stop him 
Now it's worth bearing in mind that Springheel Jack was not captured. This information should probably be enough to tell you that in not enough was done to stop Springheel Jack. Despite this, there were some ploys in an attempt to stop Jack from spreading his terror far and wide. During the height of Springheel Jack fever gripping London in the late 1830s, the Lord Mayor at the time put up a reward for a whopping £10 to help catch the villain, which equates to around £800 in modern terms. This is a princely sum, but maybe not quite enough considering that Springheel Jack was smearing his presence around London, sexually assaulting multiple women by ripping their clothes, a couple of the key stories we have touched on earlier. Some of the illustrations depict Springheel Jack assaulting his victims, then while making his inhumanly escape, hero-like figures can be seen firing guns at him. Now there is no story I came across to say that Springheel Jack was ever eventually hit by one of these bullets. This may be telling to the markship of those wielding the guns, but it could also be an explanation of why Springheel Jack sightings were so sporadic. Perhaps Jack did get injured from these encounters from time to time, meaning he would need to go into hiding while he recovered from his wounds. This would go some way to explain why the encounters with the anti-hero were not always consistent in terms of a timeline. Maybe he was completing his work as and when his injuries allowed. Following the setting of a bounty by Sir John Cowan, the Lord Mayor of London who I just mentioned, to capture what he described as a demonic creature with eyes like balls of fire and hands like icy claws. Those in other parts of the country took the threat of spring Jack seriously and began to take it upon themselves to protect their areas from the menace. It reported to be, to be believed, the Duke of Wellington armed himself and went out on horseback to hunt down spring Jack, despite the Duke being the ripe old age of 70 which was some feat in the 1800s. Residents in and around Lincoln are reported to have shot at the unidentifiable attacker, but to no avail. They were made to watch as Jack simply made his escape by jumping over walls and onto buildings. Following on from the incident with the two soldiers that was mentioned earlier, in around 1870, the army reportedly set up traps in an attempt to capture spring Jack and prevent any further misjustices being carried out by the perpetrator. Again, these attempts were made in vain as Jack continued his reign of terror throughout England. Alas, many attempts of varying degrees of severity were made to stop Springheel Jack, yet there was no success in any of them. So that leaves us with one last question, the main one. Who was or is Springheel Jack? See, I... Why are they all called Jack as well, actually? Like, does Jack the Ripper Well, Jack? that's... I don't think I've mentioned it at any point, but Jack the Ripper and spring Jack are supposedly... Well, they are two completely different people. Uh, there's not really any paranormal aspect to Jack the Ripper. Yeah. He's just a murderer. Yeah. spring Jack never killed anyone. Yeah. He's just an assaulter. Wouldn't they not... Not, not, not like that's okay. Yeah, yeah. But he just assaulted people. Well, I wonder why he changed from women to soldiers, though. Well, do you reckon it was just what he could ever, what he could I've get his hands? I've got some potential suspects and some potential theories. If you'd like to hear them. Yeah, well, I just don't think he's that paranormal. You know, I think he's maybe just a fella in like a little suit. 
Just a little pal and a little Susan. No, a little fellow. I wouldn't like to see him, obviously. <laughs> you like to hear who I think it might be? Yeah, go on. Or potentially the different people who do it. Let's just, I'll, I'll just tell you. So the first suspect we come across is Henry Delapoire Beresford, the Mad Marquise. Born in 1811, our first suspect is somewhat of a nobleman, having an estate in Waterford, Ireland. He was well known for being an active and successful sportsman in his youth, participating in hunting and having a strong love for horses. Despite being from Ireland, Henry was often found in and around London. He earned the nickname the Mad Marquise as a result of his often outlandish behaviour which was quite often deemed to be outside the realm of that of an acceptable gentleman. He was known for being a big drinker and loved to gamble, once even riding a horse to a living room and providing attendance to a racing event for those less privileged just to annoy the snobs that he would be usually forced to hang around with. Some sources have gone as far as attribute Delapoir, I assume that's how you say his name, <laughs> as being the pioneer of the phrase to paint the town red, uh-huh. as a result of his extravagant antics and partying. I thought I said he was something with blood, but... Well, no, it's a... It's Henry. <laughs> it's a nobleman from Ireland. <laughs> More to the point, in 1837, the time of the first spring Jack attack, the Marquis was in London. The theory goes that the money and influence that comes with being a nobleman was used to aid ill gains and that contraptions were made in order to allow the party animal to leap further than a normal human, helping him to escape his victims and potential capture. Furthermore, one of the key features of Spring-Heeled Jack were his devil-like eyes. Could it be possible that the characteristics of Henry de la Poer's eyes could have been altered due to some sort of substance abuse. It isn't outside the realm of imagination that a character would, such as him would be under the influence of alcohol or drugs, briefly or permanently, that may or may not alter the appearance of his eyes. As for the fire-breathing aspect, one theory is that the Marquis learned a circus trick, giving him the ability to spit flames. Alternatively, touching back on the jumping contraption, could the Marquis have used his money to fund a gizmo that would shoot flames on demand, but placed it upon his person in such a way that it looks to be coming from his mouth, for example, sitting it tight to his collar, not clear to the sight of a distressed victim? Yeah. On the other hand, we do have to look at the flip side of the argument. Henry de la Poer was considered by some at the time to be spring Jack, yet the sightings of this attacker were dated right up until 1904. The Marquis of Waterford returned to his native land in 1842 to marry his fiancée, Louisa Stewart, and continued to remain resident there until his death in 1859, following a sporting accident. While it would be conveniently fitting to place all culpability on the Marquis of Waterford, did it all start as a prank, a bet that it went wrong, and then it all spiralled from there. However, there are major pitfalls in this argument, namely that he was dead for around 45 years when the last sighting of Spring-Heeled Jack occurred. Or is this more confirmation that Spring-Heeled Jack was not in fact human, but something that started off human and continued to be seen, even after their natural life had ended? 
Yeah, I was just going to say, well, maybe it did start it, like as a jump prank, and then he passed away, but still carried on. Yeah, so that he was well known for doing bets and, and things like that. So when I mentioned he rode, rode a horse, horse yeah. through a living room, that was because I think someone told him he couldn't do it. Uh, but there you so know. he did it. If they, if he, he probably said, oh, I can jump this high or something, yeah. and someone probably went, no, you can't. So he was like, I, I can't. Apparently I can't he, he broke into... Um, you know, eating the posh school. Yeah, yeah. He broke into there and robbed something from one of the teachers. Oh. I believe. I can't remember the full story, but is he? And we're all like the prime minister, yeah. doesn't that go? Oh. Well, he's a nobleman, is he? Probably. Yeah, yeah. Um. So that is the the Marquis of Waterford, the Mad Marquis. I think it may be him. Well, that's why he's a suspect. <laughs> we move on to suspect number two, Thomas Milbank. Which was the one I mentioned earlier, who actually got tried for potentially being. Oh yeah, for the late. It was in court. Yeah, so this was, um, I think it was Jane Allsop maybe, yeah, yeah, where he rang the doorbell and he yeah. got, someone got arrested for it and it was Thomas Milbank. And his sister stopped it. Yeah. Yeah. So moving on to the other end of the social spectrum, we find one Mr. Thomas Milbank. While not a pauper by any means, Mr. Milbank was also not a nobleman. Not much is known about this suspect as the accusation of him actually being spring Jack was relatively short-lived. This case begins after the attack on Jane Orsop, which we discussed earlier. Thomas was heard to be parading with, his jo- with joy around his local pub, the Morgan's Arms, about how he was spring Jack and that he was responsible for the fear that was gripping Victorian London. Catching wind of this, police soon arrested Thomas Milbank and he was tried in Lambeth Street Court for his crimes. When arrested, he was found to be wearing overalls similar in description to that worn by Jane Orsop's attacker. Furthermore, a coat was uncovered among Milbank's belongings that loosely matched that of the offender. Even his appearance which was used as evidence in the case, with the court hearing that the suspect's tall, dangly appearance matched the portrayal given by those that had supposedly seen Spring Hill Jack. The case against Thomas Milbank was mounting up, but it was during the trial that, I imagine to his relief, the whole thing came unravelled. Jane Orsop insisted to the court that her attacker spat blue and white flames from his mouth when the unfortunate event occurred. Of course, this is something that Thomas Milbank could not do, and when this was proved to the court, I imagine after several exerted breaths, Milbank was freed and warned by law enforcement that his actions of scaring women and children by pretending to be a prominent offender need to cease, as do the false claims of being such an offender. The court closed its case by placing on record that it was under no impression that a man such as Thomas Milbank had the capacity nor the ability to orchestrate the string of attacks that had occurred in the city of London and remain uncaptured and unidentified. Potentially a ploy by the court to ensure that the residents of London were at ease and to further reinforce that the court had made the right decision to let Thomas Milbank walk free. But potentially, that was Mr Milbank's intention, to make the court feel that he was incapable of committing such crimes as to be set free and continue to wreak terror. See, you know, the way they're asking him to prove it in court, he could just not prove it. Yeah. He could just had... Yeah, so he could be a dragon. Do dragon things so much, <sighs> yeah. Um, never spat flames. Like surely, he, if he, if it was him, then he would have like gizmo, like maybe drinks alcohol and then spits it or something. 
But like, he could have just not done that before court. So. What's that shot that you set on fire at the top and that has a little blue flame filament uh, in there? Oh, yeah. Potentially, is that whatever liquor's in that? The... I don't know, you know? Is it absent? No. I'm not too sure. I don't know, I'm but not I a shop person. No, no. <laughs> but I, I know there is a shot that you yeah, set on yeah. fire it's got a little blue flame. Potentially that was it, but from the stories, the flames are meant to be like really big and quite scary. I think maybe they've just had alcohol and then they've like a match or something. Yeah. Maybe. We've got another suspect, which is a Captain Finch. A further case of a reporter's suspect that was thought to be a Captain Finch. During 1847, a servant girl was heading home after finishing her shift one winter's evening. It was a bleak January night and the weather restricted visibility and also deterred most from venturing out. However, this unfortunate servant girl encountered a fate that was blamed on Springheel Jack. The girl was assaulted twice between the hours of 9pm and 10pm. The yeah. attack took place in the town of Tainmouth, which is in Devon on the south coast of England, somewhere outside of London. From investigations, authorities were on the hunt for a person wearing a hide type coat and a headpiece that appeared to have horns. Suspicions were raised surrounding a man named Captain Finch, which came as a shock to most as he was a man of around 60 years of age that was a well-respected retiree from the army. Furthermore, it was said that Captain Finch was of ill health and questions were raised as to whether he could actually commit the crimes he was accused of. Following a hearing, it was indeed found that Captain Finch was guilty of the assault on the servant girl that January evening. As recompense for his crime, he was ordered to pay 17 shillings for each of the two assaults. But it was widely agreed that the original suspect, Spring Hill Jack, was not in fact to blame, and that furthermore, Captain Finch certainly wasn't the elusive Spring Hill Jack, but rather a criminal attempting to use his age and health conditions to hide from his actions. It may also be argued that by reading the stories of Spring Hill Jack, Captain Finch may have took inspiration from the outfit descriptions, potentially in the hope of placing the blame on somebody that cannot be found. It almost sounds like the perfect crime. Yeah. Yeah, it's a frozen Springfield. It, Springfield Jack. But he definitely thought I'd be able to hide this by well, doing it. But twice in like one hour, why yeah, is he doing that? I don't think there wasn't much description of what actually occurred. Yeah. But it was in one of the articles I read. It did say that he got up very, very lately because people hung for that yeah. for those crimes, and he got he just, just ordered to, to pay money. Yeah. Which Probably is, because of his name, like because he's quite. Yeah, well. maybe he took into account what he's done in the army or, or something or other. But it's not right, but no, it's not. But, but maybe yeah, maybe it wasn't even that bad though. Like ill, ill wise, he just done that so he could assault people. Yeah. Without them thinking, do you know what I mean? Yeah, so I've got one last. It's not so much a particular suspect, but theory. Mm. So, this theory is one that I'm probably most inclined to believe is the truth, or as close to the truth as we can get. It may be that there was an original Spring-Heeled Jack that committed that first offence back in 1837. Potentially, that may have been the Mad Marquis, but following on from this, it seems very likely that other offenders used the mass hysteria caused by the spring Jack phenomenon to commit crimes of their own, 
under the guise of a spectre that supposedly cannot be caught. It would help to explain the sightings in multiple parts of England and potentially further afield over a large number of years, for example being first spotted in 1837 and then last spotted in 1904, which would mean that Jack would be approximately 80 to 90 years old on his last accept. Accepted sightings. I have a spring in a step then, is he? <laughs> and I say accepted sightings as there are reports of him being seen across the UK well into the 20th century. It is even stated that by none other than Beatrix Potter in 1877 that a group of young men going by the name of the Spring Heeled Jacks were parading around Manchester, causing mayhem, scaring people, and stealing in the process. It cannot be denied, therefore, that the fear created by the Spring-Heeled Jack story was profited on by other delinquents so that they could wreak their own havoc. Further confirming this theory is one of the final sightings in Liverpool. There was a figure leaping from roof to roof. There was no sinister crime being committed by this man, yet he was arguably mentally ill as he was being coaxed down from the rooftops by the police. He he, He could be heard to be shouting that his wife was the devil. (laughs) <laughs> nobody was, think that. Well, <laughs> nobody was assaulted, just a man trying to get his message across by literally shouting from the rooftops. <laughs> the claim that this was Spring-Heeled Jack was likely conjured up by locals or the press to stir up the news or attract attention to the case. So, obviously I can't say it was copycats without looking at the flip side of that. So, was he actually paranormal? Yeah, well, that would explain why he's been around for a few years and can go around different locations. So from the many tales that can be recounted about Spring-Heeled Jack, many would argue that he is a paranormal being with superhuman abilities and features. And as he was never truly caught or identified, this may in fact be true. Some may tell you that Jack is an alien, that his Mm. appearance and otherworldly abilities that jump so high as... He is just that, otherworldly. Others may contest that Jack is a form of demon or reincarnation of the devil himself, earthbound to spread evil and cause distress. But the reason that these points can be opposed is that when the original Spring-Heeled Jack case surfaced in 1837, local shows and theatres were quick to absorb the hype of the phenomenon in order to bolster their ticket sales. This was done by many Punch and Judy shows along with Penny Dreadfuls, which were publications of the time focusing on horror stories. With the media bringing Spring-Heeled Jack to the wider public's attention, it isn't outside the realm of imagination that fictitious elements were engineered by the creators of these stories or plays to make them more interesting or to help captivate the audience's imagination. With varying accounts of supposedly true Spring-Heeled Jack stories circulating their way to the attention of the masses, it is no wonder that the mystery around the case built to such heights that nobody could truly explain away the assaults and attacks that stemmed from London. Or maybe that is cynicism creeping into my thought process. Maybe Spring-Heeled Jack, the same character that apparently always appeared as a young man, that could jump over walls and onto roofs, that could spit blue and white flames from his mouth and had razor-sharp claws on his hands. Just maybe he wasn't from this world. And just maybe he is still out on the hunt. Oh, don't say that because he was in Liverpool. 
But he was also everywhere else. I could take him. I mean, in this day and age, he's watermelon with heels on his boots. He probably would get jumped anyway in, in Liverpool. Oh, no, that's not nice. <laughs> it's not, though. Really, but that's his unfortunate reality. You get called a sweaty gop or something. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I don't think he was an alien, though, because I don't, I don't really like aliens. <laughs> so you don't want him to be an alien, so he's not? No, I mean... I don't dislike them, but I don't think they're evil. Like, I'm indifferent to them, but I don't think they're evil. Okay. I think this is a whole entirely separate conversation you can have. Um, I think it probably started with that man who done the horse prank, and then... Black Marquis. Yeah, now people are just thinking, oh, we can use him as, like, a scapegoat. Yeah, but then that's the other thing. He died in, like, 1850-something, 1859 or 57, I believe it was. Yeah, true. So it, the attacks carried on. Even purportedly on the army. That was in 1870. Yeah. But why would he go from women to the army? I think that is just... I think that is just... I think it moves from... Someone like the Mad Marquis had the sort of thought process to do that to women, Mm. I think. Because... He had pretty much everything. He had money. Yeah, so he feels like he can just grab what he wants. Yeah, he can do what he wants. Yeah. Maybe he thought if at first it was some kind of joke, some kind of yeah. prank, with that would make sense, and I get that. But then moving from there, I think other people have taken the hype and the hysteria, used it for their own gain, and they just sort of. I think a lot of the stories. I mean, I don't want to say exaggerated, like the victims didn't suffer anything, but I mean like the height of the moment and the stress of the moment has caused their their reflection of it. To be a bit jaded. Yeah, like you're disordered, aren't you? So maybe he had like a lighter or something, and he's brought it up to his face to like to show his face. Yeah. And then they've been like, "Oh my god, that came out of his mouth." Yeah, because was not really attacking people and like say jumping on the back of a horse? Which, in fairness, this is the eighteen hundreds. Many people are gonna wear cloaks and yeah boots with heels on and stuff like yeah. that. Maybe they just jumped high and the large spring heel jack because they jumped high. Yeah. So, I think it was the character, the fictitious character, was used as a scapegoat. Yeah, it's kind of like not Chinese whispers, but like that type of thing. Hearsay. Hearsay. Like so, but people keep adding to it, maybe. Yeah, I think that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Especially considering it got seen over so many different places. Yeah. Apparently, it into the like the nineteen fifties. Someone said they saw Spring Hill Jack leaping across fields or something. I didn't include that because... What was he be leaping across fields for? Well, because that, that's exactly what I thought, and I thought you're just trying to get a bit of attention to yeah. whatever you're doing there. You find a lot of people do do copycat killers, though. Or, like, people... I can't think of an exact one now, but some people call and say, well, like... I think this was from Crime Watch, so it's obviously not related, but they call and say, like, it was me, just to get, like, the the fame, like, the 15 the minutes of fame, yeah. So I feel like when that man in the pub was saying that it was him, it's just to be like... Yeah, and also no one could disprove him. Yeah. So, I think the, the story stemmed from a true beginning. Yeah. I think somebody... I think most stories like that too, so... Yeah, but it then the, the hysteria, the hype, just carried on, and other people had to do it. Yeah. And encounters then led to hearsay, then led to folklore 
Yeah. Which I think after so long, it's just going to become embedded in football. Everyone knows a bit of Spring Heel Jack history. And then when you when you um like say when you tell stories around the campfire and stuff, this is like, obviously you don't do that, but like that type of thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you just add to it because you want a reaction. You want to scare people. Well, you, it's yeah, fun. That's true. We like ghost stories. Yeah, you're doing it for that purpose. You're yeah. entertaining somebody. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's everything I found on Spring Heel Jack that I thought should be brought to your attention. I think it's interesting, but I, I don't think he's paranormal. No, I think this is definitely more a, sort of a true crime episode rather than a paranormal episode because while there may be parts that are deemed paranormal, yeah, I, think he's like expla- I think there's explanations. Yeah. Yeah, even though it is demonic and there's like fire and claws and mm. he's got horns on some of them. On his hat, yeah. on his uh, mask, whatever it is. I think that's just... I think it's distressed victims potentially not seeing it, the, the situation as for what it was because they're going through such a traumatic yeah. event. I think there's a lot of explanations to be had for a lot of what happened. Yeah, definitely. But because that maybe technology wasn't so well known or so people could didn't think it was possible, maybe... In yeah. terms of spitting flames or something like that, or, or yeah, well, people I want to say spring heels, but even they're not really a thing now. People might have even put like two and two together that alcohol makes flames. Like when people went, they may not really have known people educated. set shots on fire. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> Never been to Barber. <laughs> that sticky floor. <laughs> we got asked to go out the other night. We got asked to go in there. Don't care. No people outside. They want free shots. And we were like, no, we weren't going to go in anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> but we looked inside the window and there was absolutely nobody in there. <laughs> and we were like, no. Then free no, shots, I'll pay you to not give me one. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway. Yeah, so Spring Heel Jack, not that normal. Started off as something. Started off as one person, I believe, and then moved on to a bunch of copycat killers. Not copycat killers, because they didn't kill anyone. No. Copycat assaulters. Offenders. So that's that solved. Yeah, so we've solved another one. What did we solve last week? We solved ghost Ghosts. stories. Or in, no, ghost in general. Oh, we solved ghosts in general, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we're doing quite well. Um, um, we're going to run out of topics, though. Still waiting for the check of the, the ghost research oh, yeah. society of the world. Well, I won't have to do my episode next week if we've solved everything, will I? No, I'll have to. Just pull your finger out your ass and do something, won't you? <laughs> Solve something of your own. <laughs> I like Scooby-Doo. Okay, thanks for calling me a dog. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. If you'd like to email us any comments or potentially your own ghost stories that have happened, or not even ghost stories, any events that have happened to you, you can email us at acrosscemetery at gmail.com. Or folklore from where or, you're from. Yeah, or folklore if it's specific to your region or something like that. You can find us on social media. We're on Twitter at AX the Cemetery, TikTok at AX the Cemetery, and Instagram at Across the Cemetery. We don't have Facebook. And I was really happy about it. Yeah. And if you could leave us a review, that'd be very good. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah, I'm welcome. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
soldier let out a shout. Shoot. This was enough to make the clawed stranger drop the man's face. Drop the man's face, Joe. <laughs> <laughs>